1: gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter. Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was but because he was kind of short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Well, folks, we're in Halloween weekend. You know, Christians have always had a mixed history with Halloween. In some ways, we got it started. When Christianity first came to Europe, Western Europe's main religious group was led by a group of priests known as Druids. Like in many places around the globe at that time, the dominant worship was the worship of nature gods. And the annual calendar where the days grew shorter and longer was really important, with particular emphasis being placed on the longest day of the year, the summer solstice in late June, and the shortest day of the year, the winter solstice in late December. They also paid a lot of attention to the two days during the year when the day and the night were equal length, late March and late September, what we call the spring and fall equinoxes. The cycle of the moon's phases were important. Every new moon was, was noted for something. But for Halloween in particular, the evening which was halfway between the fall equinox and the winter solstice was given particular attention and it had a name in the Gaelic languages of Ireland and Scotland and Cornwall. It was called Samhain. Well, when the church arrived in Western Europe, the church chose to take over this, this day by celebrating the saints. Thus, November 1st became a special day in the church. All Saints Day, or as it was often known, All Hallows Day, All Holy Day. And we're going to celebrate that next Sunday. It's a celebration of those saints that we want to honor, particularly those saints who transferred to the Church of Heaven in the last year. Well, All-Holy Day, the night before a prayer vigil, was often held, and it was known as All Hallows' Eve. And during that time it was said that the spirits of the dead, who died without Christ, walked on the earth. And so jokesters began playing pranks, and it's the All Hallows' Eve that slowly became All-Halloween. You know, some churches have frowned upon any of the celebrations of Halloween, even prohibiting the children of the church from trick-or-treat or bobbing for apples or all of those fun games. To those who have a strong faith in Christ, though, Halloween can be a simple evening of fun, a time spent eating candy and chocolate, a time getting together with friends and watching the children. Sandra and I enjoyed an evening last week when we watched the classic Cary Grant Halloween horror comedy Arsenic and Old Lace. Has, have any of you ever seen that? Oh, you need to get it. It is hilarious. But there's an, indeed a possibility, there is a possibility of getting too caught up in the negative spirituality of the evening. For Christians are warned, particularly in the Old Testament, of consulting mediums and soothsayers, so seances and things of that nature fall under that. As a great Christian writer, C.S. Lewis, wrote, you know, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In Isaiah chapter 1, God speaks of how he feels about ceremonies and sacrifices, which should particularly apply to those who get overly involved in the ideas of Halloween. God said, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord, I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling? of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense, 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 is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. Instead God asks us wash and make yourselves clean. He's talking about baptism. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You know, it's been long been fascinating to me that so many people want to believe in ghosts and devils and demons and witches and zombies and vampires the evil supernatural creatures, yet these same people will deny that the good supernatural exists. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, good angels. They'll say that they're just myths and superstitions. I suspect the reason is that there's an adrenaline rush. There's a high, so to speak, when we're scared and nothing bad happens immediately. Maybe the sugar and the chocolate and in many cases the alcohol and provocative costumes of some parties lead people to get a rush. For most people, though, this is just something that's a passing phase. And of course the desire to scare other people is what motivates people into using gruesome costumes and frightening front porches. The chance to say boo, the chance to display their inner sculpture artist by mutilating poor helpless pumpkins, even the chance to find the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. You know, when I was over at Quietdale one night, we actually had a zombie walk back when those were popular, and it was amazing. We had a guy who came to the zombie walk who had never set foot in a church, and because of that, six months later, he was baptized in that church. Halloween can be so useful if used properly. For most people, gradually, gradually, you know, Christmas decorations overtake Halloween decorations in importance. Family celebrations at Thanksgiving and Christmas are more important than parties with friends at Halloween. Yet getting overly involved in the things of Halloween, like a few people do, as what has led into harm a certain percentage of young men and women, people who were perhaps lonely already, who were perhaps somewhat unbalanced to begin with. They wanted to belong, and they belonged to the wrong things. You know, Halloween is that time of the year when we peek around the next corner and we see death in action, but are still able to pull ourselves back from the picture of the black hooded figure with the scythe and shrink from death with our heart beating fast, and say to ourselves, this is just fun. Yet until someone chooses to follow Jesus and surrenders their life to Jesus, until someone is baptized and receives the Holy Spirit of God to replace our poor corrupted spirit, death, a permanent death figure, stalks us. He's always in the back of our mind, and Halloween gives us a glimpse of this and might motivate us to get right with God before it's too late. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there are people in this world who tell you that the entire goal of Christianity is to give us eternal life. There are people who are Christians who believe that is the whole purpose of church and everything. And while that is indeed a major gift of becoming a Christian believer a follower of Christ. It's not the goal that Christians are to shoot for. It's not the goal that God has set for us. It's a gift. Unfortunately, too many people who claim to be Christian have mistaken the gift of eternal life for our true goal as Christians, and they give the rest of us a bad name. No, our goal is to become people who are pleasant to be around for all eternity. We are to be people who are pleasant to be around for all eternity. And that sounds trite, but it's true. We're to become holy people who have the character of Jesus. We're to become people who love and worship God, not because we're afraid of hellfire, but because we love the beauty and the kindness and the love that's a core part of God's character. We call this goal becoming holy. And the method we use to achieve this is to focus upon Jesus so much that we begin to imitate him in all of our actions and words and eventually even in our thoughts. In fact, Christian in the ancient languages originally was used as a teasing term and it meant little Christ. The church proudly accepted this term and they ran with it through the centuries. Last week, we learned the importance of focusing upon Jesus when we're comparing our behavior to others because His perfection acts as a mirror to us. As we become more holy, cleaning away the sins in our lives, and we approach Jesus closer and closer, if we're looking at Him, we'll grow closer to this perfect mirror that is Jesus and we'll see our imperfections more clearly, which keeps us humble and allows us to polish away our remaining imperfections, but if instead we turn to compare ourselves with other people, we'll become pride-filled, a sin that will keep us from becoming more like Jesus and chase away those people who would see us as an example to follow. We have to always focus upon Jesus, not on other people's behavior. If we're to truly progress in our Christian walk to become those pleasant holy people that God desires us to become, But why does God care if we become holy? Because God, more than any other person, knows the damage that pride can do to a soul over the centuries. Lucifer was the angel of of light, but because of his intense pride, he became Satan and fell from heaven. We all have character flaws. But if we accept God's Son to lead us, we are admitting that we don't have all the answers. And thus we can be taught over the course of this life and the centuries that follow. And during those centuries, our character flaws will gradually be polished away as we take instruction from our Lord. But if we will not accept Jesus, if we will not accept that He is much grander and wiser than we are and worthy of being followed, worthy of teaching us, then any character flaws we have today will gradually grow over time until they consume us. As I've mentioned before, imagine the sweetest little old lady that you've ever met. A saint in her 80s or 90s, she did not get there suddenly. She's practiced for decades, looking to Jesus as a model. Imagine what she'll be like in another thousand years. Imagine what you could be like if you practiced for another thousand years. Or can you, you can imagine the crabbiest old man you know, the nasty man who barks in hatred at other people. You've all met someone like this. He also did not get there suddenly. He's practiced for decades. But he continually compared himself to other people and looked at himself in the mirror. Imagine what he will be like with another thousand years of practice being crabby. Now you know what hell's like. God has chosen to surround himself with the saints who have compared themselves to Jesus and were able to be taught. They showed that they could be taught because they accepted Jesus as Lord and began, however imperfectly, to follow Jesus. But God does not choose to surround himself with the distorted, hate-filled people who are focused upon themselves, who could not be taught because they would not bend the knee to anyone, even God's Son. So who is welcome to follow Jesus? Our Gospel reading today from Luke 19 shows us how accepting Jesus is of people whom the world detests and looks down upon. Jesus was walking to Jerusalem from Galilee. The road starts near the freshwater lake that's the Sea of Galilee and it follows the Jordan River down, down, down the deep valley towards the shore of the Dead Sea, 1,400 feet below sea level, the lowest place on Earth's land surface. But about 25 miles before the Jordan River enters the Dead Sea, the path turns to the west and goes up 400 feet to the oasis city of Jericho. It's where the various King Herods, spent their time when the weather was cold for the climate of Jericho is very pleasant almost year-round so they built palaces there. They built palaces and they also built the huge temple of God but that huge temple of God and those palaces did not build themselves. It took many workers to build them and many precious stones and metals to make them beautiful and that all took money and money which was collected by a team of men that King Herod hired. Men who found that collecting taxes could be a way to make a fortune. And so the tax collectors of ancient Israel were not known for being devout, God-fearing men. No, they were known as greedy, sneaky men who used armed thugs to collect far more than they needed to or should have collected. And then they kept a large percentage of the money they collected for themselves. It was all built into the way the system worked. A man went to King Herod, or the Roman governor, and negotiated a contract. As a chief tax collector, he would agree to deliver a certain amount of money to the government by a certain date in return for the rights to collect that money from the people of the district. And then he'd hire men to go and collect coins and livestock and anything that could be sold. In general, the idea was that he would collect whatever the traffic could bear from the farmers and merchants in the district. As long as he collected enough money to pay for his contract, the government was happy. And they turned a blind eye to anything else he collected. So an aggressive chief tax collector could make a fortune, sending armed men to collect anything that wasn't nailed down in a village. He was like a mob boss. The only limit to what he collected was his own self-interest. Would the farmers have enough left to survive and farm the next year so they could pay taxes the next year? In Jericho, there lived a very short man named Zacchaeus. Because he was short, he had probably decided early in life that he could not do well as an ordinary farmer and instead worked his way into becoming a chief tax collector. And as I mentioned, Jesus was walking to Jerusalem from Galilee and he had to pass through Jericho. Zacchaeus found out. He had heard about Jesus and he wanted to see the celebrity preacher. But there was a crowd and Zacchaeus, well, he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up this large sycamore fig tree. Now the sycamore fig is not related to our sycamore, which is named after it, but it has certain similarities. The bark peels off in papery strips, just like our sycamore. There's a picture of one. Big tree. It's a tall tree, 60-70 feet tall, and it has a good spread. Even the leaves are large and shaped the same as our sycamore. But the sycamore fig is a fig tree. It bears edible figs that are an inch to an inch and a half in diameter. It used to be found all over Palestine and Israel, but has largely been replaced by more productive fruit trees. So Zacchaeus climbed the sycamore fig tree to see Jesus. Notice that seeing Jesus was very important to this man who was despised by his countrymen because of how he made his money. Jesus came up to the tree and he looked up said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now either Jesus was using his supernatural wisdom and recognized the man, or Zacchaeus was simply a man who was well known by many people. And I leaned toward the latter because of the crowd's reaction. Zacchaeus shimmyed down the tree and he welcomed Jesus, Jesus gladly. And the crowd around who saw this began to mutter, Jesus has gone to, the guest, to be the guest of a sinner. And Zacchaeus heard this. He said to Jesus, Look, Lord, notice that this sinner, this tax collector, called Jesus Lord. And I think he meant it. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And I suspect the crowd hushed. It was an astonishing declaration from this wealthy man who was despised by the people of Jericho? Why did Zacchaeus do this? Had he been falsely accused of ripping people off? Had the people misjudged his heart? Or was he just trying simply to get in good with Jesus? It's an awfully high price to pay for a dinner with Jesus. Of course, I might pay that much or more. Who have we misjudged? simply because they were known to be much wealthier than us, or because they appeared to be much poorer than us. We in the crowd often judge people, don't we? Why do we so often judge people's hearts and souls based on their monetary wealth or their lack of wealth? Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Jesus was pointing out that Zacchaeus was not that different from the other people in the crowd. All of them were descendants of Abraham. All were Israelites. Just as we might need to remember that both the homeless man and the billionaire are both Americans. And even more, we might need to remember that all the people we meet are human, just like us. As the old saying goes, every man puts on his pants one leg at a time. Jesus continued, now drawing the focus back to himself and what his mission was. He said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was despised by the people in the crowd that day because of what he did for a living. It's clear that he would gained extra income and wealth from his business. He was wealthy enough to give half of his possessions to the poor. And Jesus complimented him because of it. But this is not primarily a story about wealth. It is a story about a man who wanted to be right with God. A man who did something very uncomfortable. Climbing a tall tree as a short man to get close to God. What have you done that's uncomfortable to get close to God? It's a story about how a man experienced a changed life because he encountered Jesus. You know, I think in our world, at least half of us, don't feel respected by other people. We feel like Zacchaeus, short, despised. Our own sins generate a sense of shame in our hearts. And that shame that's in our hearts then affects how we behave in front of other people. Because we feel shame over some sin that we committed years ago or we keep committing, we take every glance, every whispered word, everything said by other people, particularly our family, as a condemnation of us. Because of our own shame, we think that everyone is looking down upon us. And that's why being accepted is so important to people. That's why bars succeed. That's why recovery services succeed. That's why the church can succeed when we accept people. What's the reality though? Reality is that very few people we meet know what we've done. We are not wearing a huge scarlet A like the heroine in Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter story. Besides, even the people who know what we've done or can figure it out are more likely just not to care rather than to condemn. And if they're true Christians, they may may look at us in pity rather than condemnation. They're worried about our souls and wondering how they can help us come to know the God who loves us. For it can be very difficult to approach someone who's filled with shame to help them without appearing to condemn. Folks, everyone has sinned. Everyone has felt shame. King David sinned repeatedly. But he wrote many of the Psalms, including the psalm from today's responsive reading. Did you hear what he said in our psalm David speaking to God about when David had sinned. He said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I confessed, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And David was wonderfully changed by this and impressed by God's love for him. And so he continued his song. Therefore, let all the faithful people pray to you while you may be found. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And so, friends... If you have sinned and not asked God to be forgiven, ask Him now in prayer. If you've asked God to be forgiven and can't feel that forgiveness, or you can't forgive yourself, know these two facts. First of all, your feelings are not nearly as important as the fact that God said God will forgive all sins. God's promises are ironclad. Our feelings are subject to the same human failings that led us to sin in the first place. God has said that God will forgive all sins and that has nothing to do with your feelings. Just as when you step off of an upper step into the air, it doesn't matter what I feel right now. I'm going down, right? Same with you. It doesn't matter what you feel, God has said He forgives you. Have you ever taken a look at this? Secondly, if you forgive yourself, if you can't forgive yourself, I'm sorry, that's probably because deep down you believe that the ethical or moral law you've broken is more fundamental than God is. Yet God not only created the universe, but created the ethical and moral laws. And if God says that law does not apply to you because you have asked to be forgiven and God has forgiven you, then why do you insist that your judgment and guilt are more important than what the creator of the universe and those same ethical and moral laws says? He created the law. He can forgive you. And that's final. Are you a better and wiser judge than God is. Have you ever noticed that the same people come to the altar each week? Have you ever noticed that these are the people that seem to be getting closest to God? You know, the altar's open to everyone who is here. You can just come forward and talk to God about what's going on in your life or thank God for what's going right. Take this chance here in a moment to get closer to God. Take this chance to bring God into your home. So today, come to the altar, all of you people. You may have a sin to confess to God and be embarrassed, or you may have people that you need to pray for and they will appreciate you coming to the altar. You may need to pray for yourself or you may need to pray for your son or daughter, your parents, your best friend, or just someone you met yesterday at the supermarket. You may be praying for someone you know from long ago who you haven't heard from you may be praying for someone you've heard about in another country we are to be praying people so come to the altar come close to God leave any shame behind leave shyness behind but come close to God and the Jesus who gave his life for you and pray